could a beautiful butterfly end up causing headaches on your farm? While it's not an immediate issue, it's a topic that bears digging into. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. Recently, the monarch butterfly was put on the red list for the International Union for Conservation of Nature. That means the international organization has tagged the butterfly as endangered. While that designation won't mean immediate impact for U.S. farmers, there is concern that it could elevate the insect in the eyes of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. That's the agency that could put the butterfly on the endangered species list, which could have broad implications for more than agriculture. We wanted to get a better handle on what it all means, so we turned to Ariel Wiegard, Director of Government Affairs with the American Soybean Association. She offers insight on the latest red list move by IUCN, as well as the potential implications of putting the monarch on the endangered species list. The key, taking voluntary action now. Ariel Wiegard, welcome to Around Farm Progress. Thank you, happy to be here. Great, now we're talking today about something I may or may not be on the radar for a lot of farmers, although it's been in the news lately, and that is, of course, the monarch butterfly, which was uh, recently listed as endangered by, what is it, the International Union of Cons- Conservation, I can't remember, IUCN? International Union for the Conservation of Nature, yeah, IUCN. Okay. IUCN, and that they put it on the red list, right? Yep. Yeah, I guess the question we have is, why all this talk about monarchs and what what's the concern and how is that evolving? Sure. So, um, well, let me back up and just talk about IUCN a little bit. So IUCN has been tracking the world's uh, biodiversity since the 1960s. And they say that today, more than 40, I think more than 41,000 species around the world are threatened with extinction, which they say is more than a quarter of, of all known species. And for people in the biodiversity world, you know, that's that's more than a quarter of our species uh, potentially being lost. That's huge. And that has, uh, you know, vast and unknown implications for uh, for all of us, uh, including those of us who like to eat and rely on, uh, you know, pollinators to to pollinate our crops. IUCN, as you mentioned, they just added the monarch to the red list as endangered. And so this is just a couple steps away from from being extinct, and this designation is a big deal. You know, IUCN is uh, an, an internationally respected and well-known organization. The news is getting a lot of attention. This is partially because the monarch is arguably the world's best-known butterfly. You know, it's got the distinct orange and black wings. Uh, it's got its its crazy and extraordinary migration between Mexico and Canada. I think that's the longest migration of any insect. Um, so this is getting a lot of notice on the news on, on social media, just because the monarch is so charismatic in and of itself. Uh, but it also factors into that that story about pollination of of our crops and our flowers and and just its role in in the overall ecosystem. Well, I think we have um, gotten greater attention to pollinators over the last five years. I've seen so much investment with concern about bee health and now monarchs and other pollinators and the value. And so. Uh, major companies have been involved in investing and working with farmers. The Nat- Natural Resources Conservation Service has worked in conservation areas on pollinators. We have been paying attention to the habitat for these kinds of insects that ne- we need. Uh, yet the the monarch continues to be under stress. Uh, yeah. So you know we ha- we have seen these 
tremendous initiatives in pollinator habitat. Um, and thankfully, we have seen improvements in, in the monarch population thanks to this voluntary conservation. So th there are actually two populations of monarch butterflies. There's a western population that's found uh, west of the Rockies in Cal between California and Mexico. And then there's the eastern population, uh, which is found throughout the Midwest and, and the eastern United States. The eastern population is, is thankfully holding steady because of all of the work that has been done over the last several years. Uh, the Western population of monarchs actually had a tremendous rally last year. Uh, they counted almost 250,000 individual butterflies in, in the Western population's overwintering grounds hmm. compared to just 2,000 butterflies the year before. So conservation works. You know, there is hope, there's potential for these big initiatives to do what needs doing. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, uh, the monarch butterfly is still just a little insect and it needs to go on this e extraordinary migration. Uh, it takes, I think, four or five generations for the butterfly to to complete its migration and complete its breeding cycle. Um, and so there are just so many potential uh, catastrophes along yeah. the way of, of that migration route, right? So many instances where you know a butterfly can can be injured uh, or it can't find enough food or whatever the case may be um, it just there's there's a lot of potential for disaster to strike and so we really need to be doing everything that we can uh, to voluntarily conserve monarch habitat uh, to make sure that they have as many opportunities to survive their migration as possible right because the flip side of this IUCN red list is that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has kind of got its eye and it's on the list to be considered to move the monarch to the endangered species list, correct? That's right. Uh, and I, I would be happy to talk about the Fish and Wildlife Service timeline, but I do want to emphasize that these are two totally different things. Right. Um, if the farmers take anything away from this podcast, it's that the IUCN endangered designation does not change any rules or laws surrounding monarch butterflies at this moment. The right. IUCN cannot change policy directly. So, you know, the rest of the summer, this fall, if you're farming, you don't need to change your farming practices. But the, the IUCN listing and all of the attention that it's getting may speed up the timeline at, at the Fish and Wildlife Service. So we don't want to get too complacent. Right. Um, they said something in what tw December 2020, they really looked at it and they, they put off putting it on the ESA. That's right. In 2020, the Fish and Wildlife Service announced that adding the monarch butterfly to the list of threatened and endangered species was warranted, but precluded by work on higher priority listing actions. Um, so they think that it's necessary. They basically just don't have the resources right yeah. now uh, to, to put it to the top of the list. And so what this does is it makes monarch butterflies a candidate species. And so every year the agency needs to reconsider whether to take it off, you know, off the candidate list and to officially list it as threatened or endangered. Um, and they'll look at this every year until the service decides it needs protection or decides that the voluntary conservation actions we've been doing have helped the population recover enough that it's no longer a candidate. Um, and so, you know, they, they're reviewing this every, every year. Uh, we are expecting a final ruling sometime in the next couple of years, though. The Fish and Wildlife Service stated in their their listing work plan, they've got a work plan for this, that they plan to 
propose the monarch for listing in fiscal year 2024 if listing is is still warranted at that point. So that would be between October 2023 and September 2024. So we've got a, a year or two years uh, tops uh, before we have a final decision from the service. Interesting. You know, I like to ask a question when I'm interviewing somebody about something like this, since farmers are my target podcast audience. When we start talking about listing the monarch on the endangered species list, why, why should a farmer be concerned about that? Or why should, it, why should that be on the farmer's radar? Great question. Yeah. So um, an endangered listing would would give the monarch butterfly the strongest protections under the Endangered Species Act. When a, a species is listed, is listed as endangered, it's, uh, it gets protection under Section 9 of the ESA, which prohibits the take, possession, sale, and import or export of, of the species. Probably most relevant to farmers, I would say, is the take provision. Uh, which includes harassing, harming, wounding, killing, and a number of other activities. Um, and, and what's important here is that harming isn't just to the individual butterflies themselves, but harming also can include harm to habitat. If that habitat harm would significantly impact behavior like breeding or feeding or sheltering. So for farmers, that could mean that if the monarch is listed as endangered, any agricultural activity that would kill or injure a monarch or, uh, uh, or harm its primary habitat, which includes milkweed, which is the monarch's host plant, critical source of food, um, any of those activities would be a violation of the Endangered Species Act. So, for instance, spraying herbicides that eliminate milkweed, for instance, could be an illegal taking. Um, when a species is listed as endangered, it, it also becomes eligible for critical habitat designation. Uh, critical habitat, you know, that could include the places where the monarch was found at the time of the listing. And monarchs are found in almost all 50 U.S. states. Uh, so that, that could be a lot. Um, it could also include places they were not found, but that could be essential for conservation of the species. Uh, so that could include quite, quite a number of acres in the continental U.S. And that would mean that any activities that involve a federal permit or a license or funding uh, would be impacted and could be restricted as a result of that critical habitat, habitat designation. The, the last thing, and this is maybe the biggest thing that, that is worth pointing out, uh, when a species is listed as endangered, all federal agencies must ensure that any of their own actions, that uh, any actions that they fund, authorize, or carry out will not jeopardize the species or adversely impact its critical habitat. Um, and if an agency determines that their actions may affect a listed species, that agency then has to consult with the Fish and Wildlife Service before taking that action uh, so that they can avoid harming, harming the species or its habitat. So where this might impact farmers, if, if the monarch is listed as endangered, is around pesticide registrations at the Environmental Protection Agency. The EPA would need to do an ESA consultation anytime it registers or re-registers a pesticide that may affect the monarch. And, and so that would mean insecticides as well as herbicides that kill milkweed. And what this could do is really draw out the pesticide registration process. Uh, it already takes an incredibly long time to bring a pesticide to market on you know, 10 years on average. And it may also result in restrictions on how the pesticides 
may be used. Uh, they may require a certain number of conservation activities or mitigations. And um, the ESA consultation could also result in pesticides being pulled from the market entirely if they found like if they find that they're going to jeopardize the monarchs too much. And again, this is just one example. The ESA consultation would affect all federal agency actions. So any government action that might affect the butterfly, whether you're talking about the Department of Transportation building roads and bridges, or USDA even offering farm loans, all of that could face additional restrictions if the monarch is listed as endangered by the Fish and Wildlife Service. So is there something farmers can do ahead of this to get or headed off at the pass, I guess, for the lack of a better phrase? Yes, I'm, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, the most important thing that farmers can do now is create pollinator habitat on and around their farms. Not just farmers, non-operating uh, landowners, individuals, businesses, everybody should be taking voluntary steps now to try to prevent, to prevent those steps from becoming mandatory under the Endangered Species Act. And farmers in particular can play a huge role in restoring monarch populations, especially in the Midwest and out east where a lot of the monarch's habitat is on private lands. You know, for instance, farmers can help by, um, by protecting and establishing plots of, of milkweed and other nectar plants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, monarchs only need small, small patches of habitat in as many places as possible rather than a few large ones. So planting milkweed does not need to take up a huge part of your farm. You don't need to dedicate the whole back 40 to the monarchs, right? You can just plant along your fences or your hedgerows, uh, in pivot corners, in your yard, you know, all of that, just, you know, half an acre here, a quarter acre there uh, can go a very long way. Well, incidentally, also improving soil health and water quality uh, and providing habitat for for the critters that take out our crop pests as well. You know, I would also say that farmers should consider uh, looking at the federal and state farm conservation programs that are available to them. Many of those, like you've already mentioned NRCS, um, many of the programs at NRCS will provide cost share to help farmers pay for milkweed and pollinator mixes, which can get pretty expensive. And farmers can also take take steps to avoid overspraying habitat with with pesticides and you know kind of considering their field margins as as sensitive areas. You know, I know that uh, you know spraying can be sensitive business, especially if you're facing invasives. Um, but it's it's really something worth managing closely if uh, if you really want to take monarch uh, conservation seriously. Um, I I should take a moment to call out the organization Farmers for Monarchs. Um, It's a group that the American Soybean Association is a member of. Um, It's made up of of groups representing farmers, ranchers, uh, landowners, other businesses along the supply chain, federal agencies, conservation organizations. It's a really robust group of, of organizations and individuals who are committed to making progress through voluntary efforts. Uh, to restore the monarch while maintaining productive farms and ranches. And Farmers for Monarchs has a lot of resources available to help farmers understand the role that they can play in monarch conservation. So um, if you've got particular questions, uh, listeners, I would encourage you to go to farmersformonarchs.org, or you can also find Farmers for Monarchs resources on on the ASA website, which is soygrowers.com. 
Yeah, I think it's a challenge because, you know, I, I chuckled a little bit when you said not, you know, planting milkweed, but I think in parts of Iowa, we would just not spray an area and we'd have all the milkweed we need because they're everywhere. But the other side of that is you get in areas in the south, for example, where I, I need to control everything in the ditch because Palmer amaranth is my problem. Um, so we've got to figure out a balance, right, in terms of maintaining against some really tough herbicide resistant weeds and yet maintaining habitat for monarchs, the, you know, the, um, from the standpoint of keeping the milkweed. So I think it's an interesting balance going forward. It is. And so, again, that's where those uh, planting areas in your yard uh, or, or planting intentional strips of pollinator habitat alongside your farm fields can go a long way. Uh, while allowing you to continue to manage the weeds in the ditches the way that you need to manage. Um, you know, I would also encourage farmers to, you know, make sure you're you're reading the labels on your herbicides and using them appropriately, um, you know, and working with your, your crop advisors or your agronomists or NRCS or your state conservation agency to figure out some strategies uh, to help achieve that balance on your own farm. Um, you know, you don't have to do this through guest work. There are a lot of people who uh, are, are qualified and, and ready to help farmers, uh, you know, make, make the best decisions for monarchs for their property and for their agricultural operations. Yeah, I mentioned earlier that it was a lot of, a uh, few years ago, there was a lot of attention to this. I think it's died down. It's still important, but I think it's died down a little bit, at least from my inbox. But the other side of it is, that those farmers at the time who said, oh, I don't need to do that now, I'm speaking to you too. Maybe you need to think about it because if you've got a little space and you can take a little time to invest in a pollinator habitat, it isn't going to hurt and it could make a big difference. That's right. And I said it before, but you know, we want people to take voluntary steps now. Yes. Uh, while you still can, uh, you know, the, the more we can do this voluntarily, you know, the better our chances are of keeping the monarch off the endangered species list entirely, um, which would help us all out. You know, if, if the monarch gets listed, uh, then all of these conservation actions are going to become mandatory and it's going to become uh, likely is going to become much more difficult to farm across most of the country. So do it now. Take the little steps. They all add up uh, to big steps in the long run. Absolutely. Well, Ariel Wegard, Director of Government Affairs for American Soybean Association, I appreciate you joining me today and uh, you have a great day. Thank you, Lily. You too. Thanks to Ariel Wegard for her insight on what's happening with the monarch butterfly and what it might mean for your farm. As she notes, it takes smaller patches of milkweed and nectar flowers to help support the butterfly, not big pollinator fields. And note that fall is a great time to get a pollinator plot going when cooler weather helps young plants get established before winter. For more information about starting pollinator plots, visit FarmersForMonarchs.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your favorite platform, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and more. And if you have a smart speaker, all you have to do is tell it to listen to Around Farm Progress, and you'll hear the latest episode. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands, as well as farm futures, beef, national hog farmer, and feedstuffs, and our events, including the Farm Progress Show, Husker Harvest Days, and the New York Farm Show. And speaking of the Farm Progress Show, gates open at 8 a.m. Tuesday, August 30th in Boone, Iowa for the big event, which runs through September 1st. 
It's the first time the event has been in this location since 2018, and from the first ever concert on the site to a host of new technology, this show will be worth the trip. You can learn more at farmprogressshow.com. And if you want to get updates ahead of the show, you can sign up for mobile texts. Just text FPS to 20505. That's F for farm, P for progress, S for show, FPS to 20505. Then respond to the text you'll receive next. Then you'll be in the know for this big event. Note the regular text and message rates apply. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening. <music>